Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and today I'm joined by my co-host, the wonderful Astrid Edwards. This week we're joined by Rebecca Huntley, who is an author and social researcher, and she's written a new book which is called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. Rebecca is probably one of Australia's most experienced social researchers. So when she sits down and tells you about the psychology of human attitudes and our ability to act with fortitude and to remain resolute in the face of climate change, then it is time to get engaged. It is time to get alarmed. It is time to sit up and pay attention. Our apologies, the audio quality of Rebecca's interview isn't what we'd quite like it to be, but the content is awesome. Rebecca, according to the published polls, there's a pretty broad acceptance now that climate change is real. And of course, we continue to see its effects around us. And yet we still have these groups in our society who clearly deny its impacts or deny wanting to do anything about that. When you read that kind of content, when you read those answers, when you read books about this every day, I mean, how do you stay strong in the face of all of that? So the first thing I tell myself is that the group of people in our society and in other similar societies like America, Canada, other countries like that, that genuinely say climate change isn't happening. So hardcore deniers are less than 10% of the population. So I don't worry much about less than 10% of the population. Unless they're in significant positions of power, then I worry about them. What is a bit more discouraging, but also in some ways shouldn't be seen as too much of a barrier, is that there is a, another group of people, probably about 15 20%, of people who aren't deniers but are just like, oh, how much should I really worry about it? Yes, it's happening, but is it going to affect me? And then there are other people who are generally concerned, but they don't know quite what to do. So to me, that is a challenge. It's a big challenge. But the question is not convincing them it's happening or that somebody should do something about it, but that something can be done. So it's a massive persuasion task, but I am full of fortitude and optimism because I don't necessarily, it's a hard task, I don't necessarily think it's been done as well as it could be because it's only been quite, it really in the last, I would say, 10 years maximum, maybe even less, that we have the genuine solutions to deal with climate change. So really affordable and effective ways to transition away from fossil fuels. And I also think it's really the penny has dropped only quite recently with the climate movement in Australia that just having a whole lot of wildfires and just having a whole lot of predictions about climate change come true is not going to convince people. We have to find new ways to convince them. So I feel that we're, even though climate change has been around for a long time, 
that there's still a lot of people who find it hard to connect their lives with climate change. I feel that, that we haven't exhausted all the options. We haven't exhausted the persuasion options and we've suddenly got a whole lot of new technology that is genuinely exciting. And I don't get excited about technology, Jamila. I still have a file of facts. Right. I, I don't even have Netflix, right? But I get so excited about renewable technology that I think this is something we can do. We're only at the beginning of the persuasion task in so many ways, in my view. I really appreciated the fact that this is a hopeful book and you do in the you know, in the text itself, Rebecca, you do get excited about the technology and what may come. However, you go through all of the emotions that we experience. There are chapters here on guilt, fear, anger, denial, despair, hope, loss, and love. So obviously hope and love are what we all kind of consider to be the happy ones. But I'd like just to kind of spend a minute on the fear and the anger and the despair. Let's do it. Let's go straight into the fear, anger, despair. Well, I have to say, I actually found these the most encouraging and that reflects where I am on my climate, you know, not my climate journey, but where Same I... Same journey. Yeah, yeah. Same no, journey. We're all on a climate journey. We've all got a climate story and we're all on a climate journey. That's the truth. So I spent most of 2019 in severe eco-anxiety and I don't know, as soon as I'm out of COVID anxiety, I imagine I'm going to go straight back there. But <laughs> I found the chapter on deep adaptation oddly comforting. And Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. It absolutely is. I mean... One of the surprising things about the book, and probably shouldn't have been surprising had I ever done psychology at university rather than law, I would have realised that there can be positive effects to negative emotions, right? To inform yourself about climate change and the mendacity of people who are trying to stop genuine action on climate change, to inform yourself on that means you are going to get angry. To look at what we have lost and what is at stake means, of course, you're going to have a fear response to that. Now, if you get lost in a cul-de-sac of fear or desperation or and if you, or if you just get, you're angry all the time, no one wants to hang out with you. Just ask Mark Latham. Nobody is hanging out with people <laughs> who are constantly angry. No one asks them out to dinner. No one says, hey, come and have Netflix and chill with angry people. But those negative feelings when used creatively and channeled effectively with other people can be useful. Anger gets you off the couch. Fear of loss makes you understand what's at stake. Nobody acts or changes if they don't think the things that they love and care about are at stake. We do have to think about all those negative emotions because negative emotions make us do things. The fear or flight mechanism that is so embedded in us is there to protect ourselves. We protect our property, we protect our loved ones because of that. But when that just kind of goes crazy and we just, that spins around without any effective action, without channels for doing things and a sense of possibility when working with other people to change things, then it makes people shut down, which is why you have not a significant, but a growing group of people we would describe as doomers who think it's all just who cares anymore, let's just stock up on canned goods and create polygamous societies where we all knit our own clothes, you know. I mean, and nobody wants to live like that, right? Uh, Rebecca, can I say that the useful skill that I have tried to teach myself in lockdown in Melbourne in COVID-19 is knitting and mainly it's because oh, I'm bored, but also it's because I have this vague fear that if the world ends, I will be useful in the post-apocalyptic apocaly- society. Yeah. 
No, no, I've learned how to pickle and jar a lot of, of vegetables. I also suggest to any woman reading this podcast that she pick out her apocalypse partner because let's face it the people we're married to people who do people who are lawyers people who are accountants management consultants they're not going to be helpful you need bear grills with some kind of a genuine survival <laughs> skill so pick them out and just have a quiet word to them that would be my suggestion could be a man or woman doesn't matter this is my gallows humor because i was really determined with this book not to write an earnest worthy depressing book i wanted something that was useful and easy to read and a bit funny because that's kind of my personality i live in fear of being useless in the apocalypse and now i am going through everybody i know thinking who will be useful and who can i marry in the future excellent well you know just yeah part hook them up you know so the writing the negative, I mean, going into the book, I kind of thought, oh, I'll go through these negative emotions and talk about how they're not something that we need to tap into or use when we talk to people about climate change. And then I'll get to all the fun, wonderful emotions like, you know, hope and love and it'll all be good. And it's, it absolutely didn't pan out that way. There's something productive and useful about every single one of those emotions, even despair, even this kind of idea of like, oh, my God, this is just so overwhelming. It makes you think about, well, if the worst case scenario happens, how might I live my life? What is it that would matter to me? What is it that I would do? And for me, it reinforced for me the need to be absolutely embedded in my community, to know the people in my street, to care for the people in my street, to have that kind of absolute investment in place. And what was so interesting about that light bulb moment for me is then I went into COVID and all of us are locked down and all of us have to rely on our neighbours. You know, suddenly it was this kind of Facebook group where one person was swapping pasta for toilet paper and we were all checking on some of the older people in the area and all seeing each other walking our dogs. And you realise, well, whether or not the worst case scenario happens, some of these things that are making me think about how I live my life are useful right now and are useful things to do even if the worst doesn't occur. Rebecca, you've talked about how you set out not to moralise. You wanted to write a book that was convincing and compelling but had some lightness in it as well. And I wonder what you think, looking back, if you think back to Kevin Rudd in 2007 and that victory where he talked about the greatest moral challenge of our time, can that kind of call to morality or nod to morality when it comes to climate action be useful for building fortitude or does it just make people feel like they're failing and we don't like failing at stuff? It's a really good point. And I mean, he gets a lot of flack and probably some of it unfairly because I actually believe that he really did believe that. It wasn't just a line that got made up by some staffers and tested well in groups. I think he really did believe that. And in many ways, if you look at it from the point of view of what our obligation is to our children and their grandchildren, then it is a moral and ethical responsibility. I mean, in the same way as I make sure my kids brush their teeth and do their maths homework, I've got to make sure that they have a livable world to grow up in. So it is a moral and ethical question. There isn't a problem with an appeal to values of that kind, but there has to be also 
something else in it for people because, and I suppose this is a strategic error, <laughs> is that it's very hard for politicians to talk about morals and ethics when it's not absolutely completely up to them about what they decide to do. <laughs> and and there's always cynicism about politicians and morality and ethics. So it was very, very difficult for him to, there were such high expectations and when it didn't play out in the way that he might have wanted and other people the Labor Party might have wanted. And this was just, this is exactly the same case for Malcolm Turnbull, who I believe, who is also committed to climate, but just couldn't carry the day within his own party, is that people see that not necessarily as a political failure, but, oh, they never cared about that. That was a disposable question for them. So I think that what's really clear and when you do research is that for some people who are already convinced on climate, and interestingly, those people who deny climate, the reason why they're like hardcore deniers their approach to it is quite moral and ethical. So hardcore deniers reject climate change because it is at odds with their other political principles. Everybody in the middle has a mixture of values, I suppose one would say, materialist and non-materialist values that drive their views about climate. So that's why I feel that sense of possibility and I suppose you'd say fortitude around this in terms of keeping on arguing the question because 20 years ago you would have had to just have an appeal to values to get people to switch to renewable energy, to move away from fossil fuels. Now you have an absolutely compelling argument based on the money and the finance that we need to do so. And I think the difficulty is, you know, it's, it is really easy for me as somebody who has a secure job, lives in the inner city, can easily walk to and from places, lots of access to public transport, all the rest of it, to talk about moral and ethical responsibilities to the planet to somebody who just doesn't have access to those kinds of things and is just trying to get through the day. So I think we need, we can have an appeal to values and morality and ethics for some people and for other people it's like, this is really good, there will be jobs in the future, there will be cheaper energy and cleaner air and better water. And by the way, there might just be some kind of a barrier reef for you and your grandchildren to go swim around with in in 10 years' time. And so that may well be enough. In the work you mentioned, reef grief, the fear that the reef won't be there for the next generation. And that phrase has struck with me, Rebecca. You have also mentioned expectations and possibilities, and we associate those with good things, hope for the future. You have a chapter called Hope. And again, this reflects where I am at thinking about the climate, but you articulate in this chapter, you didn't really find the hope section that hopeful. And... That's right. You're laughing and I was laughing when I got there. I'm like, yes, I'm not the only one that finds hope completely useless in, not completely useless, but not as useful as one would hope uh, talking about climate. And, you know, I think back to Copenhagen, you know, which was the climate conference held in Copenhagen and just all these expectations that fell flat and we're all still here. And the climate change is a long term thing. This requires determination and fortitude and a long, long darn haul. And I guess... For people listening, Rebecca, where do you place hope and the more positive spin that is sometimes put yeah. on what may come in climate? Reading all the people who who I really respect who write about how you prepare yourself emotionally for um, a real step into climate activism and how you last, right? Like, so how you don't come charging in with all this kind of vim and vigour of this idea that you're going to help save the planet and then burn out pretty quickly 
So they all talked about this idea of sceptical optimism or resolute hope, which is this notion that things are possible but you need to be realistic about what the situation is and yet you still go on. And there are millions of nice little inspirational quotes about this notion of feeling like something is hopeless, how do we start? And so that's not a kind of new... It seems contradictory, but that's not a new kind of emotional state necessarily to embark on. And it's been written about by so many philosophers and thinkers who find themselves in these really kind of utterly horrific situations and yet still do things, still brush their teeth, still look after their children, still plant a plant and or make a meal or make something beautiful or continue to play music. So... There is so much that we can draw on as we think about hope in in that kind of way. There's another thing, and I kind of twist a a very famous quote by Jean-Paul Sartre who said that hell is other people. I think, you know, what's another common thing is hope is other people. So really you kind of think, and this is particularly the case in any kind of movement that is attempting to do, bring about the kind of significant change that the climate change movement is, is It's easy for your hope to burn out if you only think about your role in it. You kind of think, okay, this is something I want to do. These are the skills that I can apply. I'm just going to work at it as long as I can. And then I'm probably going to fall over and reach out and tap somebody else on the shoulder and they're going to continue. So you're part of a larger network. So hope is in the sense that you're part of something bigger than you are. You're making the contribution you can. The outcome is uncertain. It really is. In so many ways, while the science is certain, we are the drivers of the uncertain outcome. It could actually be, we could actually manage to pull it off. The world will still be very different. Climate change will still continue. But we could manage to kind of veer away from the oncoming headlights or it could be much worse. In some countries, it could be worse than others. We actually don't really know because... The outcome is now dependent on us, our response, particularly in the next 10 or 15 years. And so that's where the resolute or the kind of hope comes from, the kind of defiant hope and the fortitude comes from, which is that other people are involved, you're a small part of a larger group making a significant contribution but not responsible for everything. And that really there's kind of no, for me, there's kind of no other choice. You either, you know, you either opt out completely or as in thinking about it and just continuous, everything is going to be okay. Or like I said, you become one of those doomers and start stocking up on canned goods. Neither of them are options for me. Neither of them are, from my point of view, ethical options as I think about my kids. And I think about just not in a position to opt out either way. Rebecca, you're someone who looks at human behaviour and people's thoughts and intentions and how they're going to impact our society and our country and our planet, we have seen that COVID and the restrictions around COVID have completely changed human behaviour almost overnight. There are some really cheering things, you know, if we look at how little we're all flying now and how little we're polluting the atmosphere as a result, but also some more concerning things. For example, my 
coffee shop won't let me bring a keep cup anymore. We're moving to more and more disposable yeah. products because we've also got to watch for virus yeah. spread. I wanted to ask about something quite specific related to COVID, and that is the idea of fortitude versus fatigue. I, I'm in Melbourne while we record this, and we're recording ahead of time, which means we're still in the middle of a Melbourne lockdown. I hope very much by the time this goes to air that we are not. We're yeah. just over halfway, and people are over it. People are tired. They are fatigued by the rules. They are fatigued by the restrictions. They miss their ordinary, easy way of life. Are there lessons in how human beings are responding to the various stages of COVID lockdown for the changes we need to make around climate change and making the way we live more sustainable? You know, I'm working my way through this in my head because it's so significant, so I don't want to make too many conclusions too early. I mean, I think that the way that all communities responded when the immediate threat happened was quite typically Australian in that we all were pretty compliant because we thought it was going to be short-lived, really. We all kind of thought about six months. Now that this is starting to emerge essentially as a kind of way of life, so obviously while things in... Victoria are the worst in the country, you can still go to the ACT and where there isn't one COVID case at all, where people are still not able to do the things that they would normally be able to do. And there is quite a bit. I mean, you know, our parliament is kind of sitting, but not really sitting. And there are parliamentarians are under lockdown. So it is the larger question of, are we going from a short-term crisis where we're all on board because we think, oh, it's worth doing and it's only going to be a short period of time? to a period of absolute recognition that this is not going away anytime soon. And then you go into a what is quite a scary time before what may be just a new way of living that we all accept, which is that we'll always have to wear masks and there's, there's certain things that we can't do. There's a scary time where people go through a panic, which is, oh, my God, we're not going to go back to life as usual. This is going to be horrible. And then the cracks that exist in our society start to really open up. Those people who are lonely, vulnerable, economically vulnerable. And so I actually really don't know how the community is going to respond, where they will actually say, you know, we just want to go back to our lives so much that we don't really care. We are prepared for the death toll to rise so that we can return to our livelihoods. And I'm already kind of feeling like everybody feels like this is probably the way we're going to live for the next year or two and that if people go, well, if I can't travel and there's a whole lot of stuff that I can't do and if it means that we have a higher death toll, so be it. And, and we may end up in that place because this is not just like an economic crisis where people respond quite fairly predictively to an economic crisis. This isn't just a health scare or kind of around that we've seen those in the past around things like HIV AIDS when I was in the 80s and that brought about change. This is a, this is a national, global, interconnected crisis which is both about the economy and the health and particularly the protection of our most vulnerable. And I just honestly, for the first time in 15 years as a researcher, I don't have any useful predictions to make. I'm kind of watching it somewhat tentatively. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking a moment to discuss with us. Well, look, there was a bit of fortitude in there, but a lot of existential panic from all of us. But we very much appreciate your instincts, your analysis, your opinions, and your very well-founded research. Thank you so much. Thank you, bye. 
Thanks so much for bearing with us during some pretty tricky audio there. Of course, Rebecca Huntley's opinions are worth a little bit of in your ears, I reckon. This is her sixth book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, and both Astrid and I thoroughly recommend it. If you would like more Anonymous Was a Woman in your feed, then you should subscribe, and we will be there twice a week, every week. While you are there, please rate and review us if you've got time. Even if you don't have time, make time. Come on, guys, help us get this podcast into more people's feeds and more people's ears. Anonymous Was a Woman was produced by Bad Producer Productions and is a product of Future Women.